Thanks, Christine, for reading a great passage. Hey, everyone. My name is Ming. I'm one of the pastors here at Uni Church, and it's really great to be here with you all. I've been really looking forward to this term, and I'm not just saying that. I've been looking forward to it because we're, we're finally getting into the book of Matthew, one of the Gospels. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed this for those of us who have been a long time here. Maybe this is your first time here. We as a church actually always spend every year a whole term in one of the Gospels, and we do that because every year we want to be reminded and captured afresh what we're on about as a church, and that is Jesus, and that's what Gospels are all about, and that's why I've been so looking forward to this term this year. Now, there's lots of goodies in this passage, so if any questions pop up, if there's stuff that you know, I don't quite cover, there's going to be a good question time on the screen to pop up, so send your questions there through text, but for now... Uh, why don't we pray and ask God to help us really capture afresh what we're on about as a church, which is Jesus. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we not only get to see who Jesus is in one gospel, but you've given us four gospels. And as we look at Matthew this term this year, we do pray that you might just help us capture afresh and really be captivated by just who your Son is our Lord and Savior. Help us to see his words, his works, and all that, and help us to be cling to him for the rest of our lives. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The other day, I heard about a place called the Prince's Palace of Monaco. Now, has anyone heard of this place before? Oh, there's actually some people. Okay. I had not heard about this place until just earlier this month, because Earlier this month, it had its grand reopening. It had this grand reopening, and it was really exciting for people because in 2015, just before COVID, um, some restorers made a massive discovery that there were a series of hidden frescoes hidden amongst the rooms, covered over by paint, layers and layers of paint over the number of years. And they dated these epic frescoes to around the 16th century, the Italian Renaissance and they were painted by absolute masters. Now, I've put some pictures up on the screen. You can check them out. And for generations and generations, right, people painted over these epic frescoes, and they'd been completely forgotten. But it was only in 2015, only until recently, they discovered it. And 40 art restorers came in and started scraping back the paint to uncover the beauty of what was originally there. And I want to say... As we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew this term, that's what we're going to be doing with Jesus. See, there's so much misinformation about what Christianity is, who Jesus is, 2,000 years of church history and tradition, and all of it obscures the beauty that's underneath it all. See, the Christian faith is profoundly simple. Beautiful, but simple. And over time, there's been all these layers that have covered it with a variety of different views and opinions that it's easy to forget the simplicity and beauty of it all, right? And so, this term, we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew to act as our paint scraper. And this term, we'll be looking at Matthew's chapters 8 to 16. Now, as Jacob mentioned before, some of you might be wondering, what happened to Matthew chapters 1 to 7? Well, as, he, as Jacob said, we did that last year. You can hop online onto our website to check out all those talks. But Ben also did an awesome job last week summarizing 10 talks into half an hour. So you can also listen to that if you want a shortcut. But of the four gospel writers, right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew's actually got the tidiest mind. He's very careful about the presentation 
and arrangement of his material. See, if you hop back through Matthew's chapters 5 to 7, just before our chapter, uh, we see the words of Jesus, all of his teaching. But then in Matthew's chapters 8 and 9, which we'll be looking at this week, Matthew deliberately sets before his readers the words of Jesus, and then he comes to chapter 8 and shows us the works of Jesus. So have a look at the way Matthew chapter 7 ends in verse 28. It's up on the screen. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. See, if God were to come to earth and you sat in this classroom and, and, and heard his teaching, isn't that what you'd expect? It'd be profound. It'd be insightful. It'd be wonderful. It'd be glorious. And that's what the people who heard Jesus firsthand experienced. But Matthew doesn't just want us to hear the words of Jesus. He wants us to see the works of Jesus. Not just hear about the kingdom of God and see it proclaimed, but to see the kingdom of God demonstrated. And so across chapters 8 and 9, we see a bunch of stories of people for whom the kingdom of God comes into their lives. And so over this week and next, so this is kind of like a part one and there's part two next week, Matthew's intention is to confront us with the question, who is Jesus and how do we respond to him? See, there's lots of stuff in these encounters, but the questions to have in mind is who is Jesus and what is the right way to respond to him? And in chapter eight, we get to see five of those episodes, five miracles to help us scrape back the layers of paint and answer those two simple questions. So keep them in the back of your mind as we open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Okay, so let's get into it. So come with me to episode 1. I've, I've named them throughout your outlines to help you follow along. Episode 1, the leper. So Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, up on the screen. When he, when Jesus, came down from the mountain, the mountain he was teaching on, large crowds followed him. So by Matthew chapter 8, there were all these people crowding around Jesus and listening to him, right? And it'd be fair to say, expectations were really high at this point. They were all wondering, what's going to happen next? Is he going to, be, is he going to do more of this incredible teaching? Is he going to, maybe, maybe he's going to do a miracle. Well, they don't have to wait long because in verse 2, up on the screen, right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before Jesus saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. See, this man who came to Jesus was a leper. And if you don't know what that is, he suffered from leprosy, which is a terrible disease which leads to this serious disfigurement of your body. You know, your fingers and toes, they literally look like they're shriveling up and rotting away. It's not a pleasant sight. I went on Google. I was going to put some up, but you can look and Google yourself. Uh, and in Jesus' day, there was no cure for leprosy, right? This man... He had such a visible, obvious need. He needed to be healed, right? But the question is, why does, Jesus choose, why does Matthew, he choose this episode to include over the hundreds of different encounters Jesus would have had? It's because there is some beauty underneath his request. So did you notice something funny about what he asks Jesus to do in verse 2? He says, Lord... If you are willing, you can make me clean. Not better, not well, but clean. 
See, there was a far bigger issue going on here than just healing. Under the Old Testament law, if you suffered from leprosy, you were unclean. No one was able to have anything to do with you. You literally had to go around yelling out, unclean, unclean, just so people knew to stay away from you. This man, he had no connection. He couldn't be near people, and he couldn't be near God and enter the temple to worship him. And so, yes, this man needed to be healed, but even more than that, he was concerned about being clean. And so Jesus responds in verse 3, up on the screen, reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him saying, I am willing, be made clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Now, on the one hand, we can just you know, read this passage and be amazed by the miracle. Jesus had just instantaneously cured a seemingly incurable disease, and it's amazing. But more importantly, by touching this man, Jesus would have now been considered unclean. And what we're meant to notice is that Jesus is willing to become unclean to make this man clean. And you can't help but think of how that points to an even greater moment to come, where Jesus willingly becomes unclean for all of us. See, what happened for this man happened for all of us when Jesus dies on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 puts it best, I reckon. It says this on the screen. He, God, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. See, right from the get-go of our, eight, of our miracles, this first episode is meant to point to the great substitution we find in Jesus. This amazing miracle foreshadows an even more amazing moment, the moment where we're made clean by the death of Jesus. And I want to say what's more, when we put our trust in Jesus, we get more than just the cleansing. It's actually the distance between us and God that's removed. Just like this leper, as our sin is washed away, we go from being distant, far away from God, enemies of God, to becoming children of God, near Him. Did you know every year, different magazines and, 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 and dictionary publishers put out lists of what they reckon the word of the year is? And in 2020, I'm sure none of us are surprised, all the words of the year were in some shape or form COVID-19 related. So they range from things like, you know, lockdown or, or quarantine or, or doom scrolling. But I think the one that actually stuck out to me was social distancing. A phrase we'd, we'd never used or heard before was in every, you know, government ad or, or news bulletin. And it was the norm for all of us. But social distancing is actually nothing new. Like we've seen in this episode, society has always been full of outcasts for all sorts of reasons. But despite the way society tries to, to social distance themselves from these people, we see Jesus' compassion and love is boundless. And his mission is to draw everyone near to God and his people. Which brings us to our second episode, episode two the centurion, because it's not just the leper who experienced this kind of social distancing, because the greatest divide at the time wasn't actually leprosy, but actually between Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. See, a Jew couldn't eat with a non-Jew, a Gentile. 
A Jew couldn't be mates with a Gentile. They couldn't eat with them. They couldn't go into their house. And that was because Gentiles were considered unclean. You know, Gentiles, you know, they worshipped other gods. They ate food that the Old Testament considered unclean. And if you associated with a Gentile, if you even touched a Gentile, you'd become unclean. And that's exactly who Jesus meets next. Look with me from verse 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. Now, a centurion is a pretty important Gentile, right? He was like a, a general in the army, a commander of a hundred men. And so this important man, he comes to Jesus begging for help. And Jesus replies in verse 7, he said to him, am I to come and heal him? Now, the tone of, you know, when we read that, the tone of Jesus' you know, response seems a bit cold. You know, there are actually different translations and interpretations here. But it's actually the centurion's reply that we're meant to notice because it's incredible. So let's carry on from verse 8. Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I am not worthy. See, we're not meant to approach Jesus arrogantly. We don't approach him with a, with a sense of entitlement. We don't approach Jesus on the basis of how good or important we are. No, we come as humble, unworthy, repentant sinners. We come recognizing, I do not deserve your love, Jesus. But amazingly, you love me anyway. See, so think back with me to the questions Matthew is trying to answer in these episodes. Who is Jesus and how do we respond to him? And this centurion is put here as a model for us on how to respond to Jesus. Because more than just recognizing his own unworthiness, the centurion also recognizes just how worthy Jesus is. So look with me at verse 8 again. He says, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. See, this army general, he knew how authority works. He knows that when he says jump, his soldiers say, his soldiers say how high. Yet with all his authority and military might, he knew he could not heal his servant. And so he sees Jesus and says to Jesus, you have an authority that is beyond this world. He recognizes that Jesus is more than just some guy, just some man at this point. He knows that just with one word, Jesus can cure diseases and sickness. And that's exactly what Jesus does for his servant in verse 13. Now, once again, this is an amazing miracle, but the point behind this miracle is actually less about Jesus, I reckon, and more about the centurion, and especially his faith. Look at Jesus' reaction to the centurion in verse 10. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. See here, Jesus is actually having a subtle dig at his Israel, his Jewish companions, and even his disciples. He says, you guys, Israel, you're meant to be the people of God. You had the inside track. You had the whole Old Testament. You had all those prophecies and promises pointing forward to me. But this right here, this is the great example of faith. And it comes from an unclean Gentile, a man you treat like a leper. And I think it's here for the first time, Jesus says so clearly 
that he's come to put an end to this ancient form of social distancing once and for all. He's come to bring down all ethnic, cultural, and religious barriers and everything else that divides humanity. So you have a look with me at verse 11. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what's Jesus saying? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the founding fathers of Israel, God's people, right? And to sit at the table with them is meant to be a picture of heaven. And the Jews, they thought that was just for them. But Jesus says, no. I tell you, people from every tribe, nation, and language will come and sit and be a part of God's kingdom. But what's more, he says those of you who think, who think they're entitled to the kingdom of heaven and belong to it, many of you will miss out. Because you don't enter the kingdom of heaven by being born into the family. No, you enter the kingdom of heaven by trusting in Jesus. See, whatever you were born, Jew, Gentile, Muslim, Buddhist, Kiwi, Asian, whatever, whatever you were born, it doesn't matter. You enter the kingdom by coming and trusting in Jesus. Let's move on to the third episode about Peter's mother-in-law. It's a short one. So have a look at me from verse 14. Jesus went into Peter's house and saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. You know, it's so simple for Jesus, right? Again, with a touch, she's healed. And the healing is so immediate and so complete that straight away she just gets up and starts to, to serve Jesus. You know, and it's actually pretty wacky when you think about it. You know, when I get up after a nap from being sick, I, I just I still don't want to get out of bed. I just want to sit there and, and still lie down. But I actually think this episode is meant to illustrate what happens when we are cleansed and saved by Jesus at the cross. See, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he forgives and cleanses us so decisively, so completely, that when we actually realize what has happened, we can't help but jump up and serve him. Any person truly touched by Jesus, saved by Jesus, will then want to serve him. And I reckon Ephesians chapter 2, you can check it out later, says this most clearly. Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to paraphrase that for you. We're saved by grace. We're saved freely through faith in order to do the good works Jesus prepared for us. We live to honor and serve the one who first served us. Now at this point, after three episodes, Matthew actually takes a break to ask the question, why did Jesus do all these healings? Why is he doing this stuff? And I think it's fair to say it's because, you know, he loved people. He could and wanted to help them. He also did it to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven, to show us what we can look forward to. Because in the new creation, there's not going to be any more sickness, no more fevers, no more illness, no more leprosy. That's what those of us who, look, who trust in Jesus can and do look forward to in the kingdom of heaven. But above all those reasons, verse 17 reminds us that he also did it to fulfill what had been said by the prophets in the Old Testament. 
You know, we spent a lot of time unpacking that last week, but again, in verse 17, we see Matthew actually quote Isaiah 53. You can check it out later. And it just reminds us that Jesus truly is the yes to all of God's promises. That is the lens that we need to view Jesus if we're truly going to be captivated and touched by him. All right, so let's carry on to episode four, the wind and the waves, all right? And I want to zoom in on this one because it explicitly asks our key question, who is Jesus? Okay, so to paraphrase from verse 23, if you're following in your Bibles, we see Jesus get into this boat with his disciples and they follow him into that boat. But as they're in the water, a massive storm sweeps up over the boat and Jesus is taking a nap. So the disciples, they, they, they start panicking. And so they, they shake and wake Jesus up saying, Lord, save us, we're drowning. And Jesus replies to them in verse 26, you have little faith. He criticizes them. Why are you so afraid? Then he gets up, rebukes the wind and the waves, and immediately it's completely calm. The men were amazed and they asked, what kind of man is this? There's our question. Who is Jesus? And how do we respond to him? And like we've seen already, the right response is simply to put our faith in him. Now in those days, that was a very simple message. But it isn't so simple today, is it? Because like Jesus, that word faith has had so many layers of pain covered over it that it obscures what it really means for us. See, when you hear your friends, when you hear people talk about faith today, what do they mean by that? You know, my friends, I've chatted about with them a lot, they think it's some kind of spiritual instinct, maybe a, a religious impulse, a, a belief where I have no evidence, but I hope something's true. Prominent atheist Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion. I had to read it for college, all right? It wasn't fun. Uh, but he defines faith like this, and he even posted it on Twitter, okay? So I put it up on the screen. Faith means belief in the absence of evidence. Now, is that what faith is? That's what heaps of people think Christians do. And sadly, many Christians would accept that definition. But that is not at all what Jesus is on about here. We've got to let the Bible act as our paint scraper because faith, at least in the Bible, is the same word for trust. It means to trust someone or something, to rely on them, have confidence that what they say is true. And you can do that rationally on the basis of detailed evidence, or you might do it irrationally. But either way, you are exercising faith. But just think with me on the Bible. In it are historically reliable accounts of who Jesus is and what he's done. It tells us God's plan for the world, for, for you and me as individuals. And it calls us to trust him, to lean on him and be confident in the evidence that it's laying before us. See, what can we take away from this wind in the waves episode? What evidence is there for us? Well, it's a story of, of how impressive Jesus is, yes. We see him with authority over nature itself. The sea, the wind, and the waves, they, they obey him. He simply uses a word and it stills. See, I'm a young dad, and I like to think that I have 
some level of authority over my two and one-year-old, right? But no matter how hard I try, they just do not listen. They crawl all over me, and, and Timmy started to spam the word no to me. I was chatting to one of you preschool leaders earlier this week, and they said, oh, all toddlers do that. They go through the no phase. See, I am not a man whose words have authority. <laughs> My words aren't like Jesus, but when, they, when these men, they see Jesus, they see his words and they go, what kind of man is this? This ain't normal. They're amazed at what Jesus could do. But being amazed is not the same thing as having trust, not having faith. They hadn't yet come to the conviction of who Jesus is. See, come with me to Psalm 107. It's an Old Testament psalm. And here we actually see a series of salvation stories about God. And in the middle section, verse 23, it tells us of some sailors who went out to sea. So have a look with me. It's up on the screen. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted the high waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Now, doesn't that sound incredibly familiar? See, it makes sense for us, for God, to have all the authority over, over skin diseases and, and fevers and even nature itself. But when we see Jesus here saying, why are you so afraid? Do we actually realize who's talking to us here? Jesus is the Psalm 107 person. He's got that ability to calm the storms, to flatten the waves. They can make my son say yes. Jesus he truly is God himself. And this episode is a snippet of evidence of that for us. But you see, what's funny is, back then, these disciples who saw Jesus in the flesh, saw his works, they had all the evidence, they had all these miracles, they still asked themselves the question, who is this man? And this brings us to our last episode, episode five. Because as they reach the other side of this lake, they get off the boat, and it's demons who actually answer their question. So look with me at verse 28. It's up on the screen. Two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now I want to say this episode is really weird. You know, demon possession drowning pigs, you know, what is going on in this whole episode. Uh, let me just first say, the Bible is very clear that there is a spiritual reality beyond our physical experience. There are angels, there are demons, these things are real, the devil is real. Our modern Western world has banished these ideas and tries to explain evil away as, as some kind of illness or, or, or mental health or, or a bad upbringing. And while there is some truth to that, the Bible is clear that evil is a result of a fallen, broken world, and the devil is adding fuel to that fire. But the real question is, what can we actually learn from this episode? Well, firstly, 
It's possible to know exactly who Jesus is and still not be saved. How we respond to Jesus really does matter. So yet churches like ours, who focus really hard on reading and understanding the Bible, we, and that's a good thing, I'll say that, we can get really caught up on someone's intellectual assent to the gospel. And I want to say, while that's really valuable and important, that's not all that matters. There are plenty of people who get the gospel. They know who Jesus is, that he died for their sins and rose to new life three days later, but they'd rather keep living with themselves as Lord, and so they reject all their evidence. You might know someone who's exactly in that boat. Maybe you are in that boat. You might know someone who's walked away from Jesus, not because they have intellectual problems, but because they just want to live life their way. And it's the saddest thing. It's possible to know exactly who Jesus is and not be saved. And this brings us to the second thing we learn, and it's that Jesus will destroy evil. See, what do the demons mean when they ask Jesus if he came to torment them before the time? What's the time? Well, simply put, it's judgment day. They knew that there will be a day where Jesus will clean up this world and judge sin once and for all. And like we discussed earlier, Jesus here in these episodes is giving us a glimpse of what we can look forward to. And it's not just no more sickness and no more illness that we can look forward to. Judgment Day truly is something we can look forward to because it's where injustice, abuse, crime will be crushed, where evil will be no more. That is something we can look forward to. All right, final thing. What about the pigs? Okay, so the pigs, what is going on there? So in the rest of the passage, right, we see these two demon-possessed men meet Jesus. They get saved, and the demons enter and drown a bunch of pigs. And as you read all that, there's a bunch of questions you might have. There's a bunch of questions in the, in the commentaries you read, okay? You know, can evil spirits inhabit animals? Apparently, why did Jesus grant their request to go into the pigs? Why did they drown the pigs? Uh, we can make guesses, but God has not answered our questions. But I don't want us to miss the point and what we can learn and understand about these pigs, okay? See, at the end of the story, those tending the pigs run off and tell the people in town what had happened. And so the townsfolk they come and check it out and beg Jesus to leave. Now, why would they beg Jesus to leave when they see that? It's because of the pigs. See, the pigs, they were their investments. And in Mark's gospel, we know that about 2,000 2, pigs drowned that day because Jesus cast these demons out into these pigs from two crazy dudes. But the townsfolk, did you notice, didn't care about the lives of these two men. They only cared about the, how their investments were doing. And to them, it was obvious that Jesus was a threat to their investments. And so they tell him to leave. Let me ask, why did the demons ask to go into those pigs? No one really knows. But look at the outcome. Everyone wants Jesus to leave. And if you're a demon, that's a pretty good outcome. Demons and Satan love nothing more than seeing people beg Jesus to stay away. And that is the most effective work of Satan in our world today. Seeing lots of people prefer pigs to people. 
seeing lots of people prefer commerce to Christ. And I wonder whether you and I are more concerned about people or our possessions. To Jesus, the lives of those two men were far more important than these 2,000 pigs. But did you know here in New Zealand, our country, we spend about $300 million more on pets than we do, to char- than we do on charity. Our nation can be just like these townspeople. See, let me ask, why did, the, why did Jesus let the demons attack the pigs? Why does he do that if he knows this is going to be the outcome? It's because he wants to confront us with that reality of what actually possesses us. Greed. Someone once said there's more than one possession in this passage. There's the obvious one, the demon possession of the two crazy dudes, but then there's the other one, the pig possession of the people. My investments, my money, and Jesus deals with both. So let me ask, what possesses you? What's getting in the way of you and Jesus? Because as we wrap up all these episodes, I reckon this is the key application for us across chapter 8. Yes, we're meant to be amazed at Jesus' identity, his authority and miracles, but do we trust him? Do we trust him with our money, with our relationships, with our lives, or do we trust those things over Jesus? Even for Jesus' closest disciples, they were possessed by fear, like we saw earlier. Maybe you're afraid of the incredible change Jesus might bring to your life if you trust in him. Can I just say, like we've seen in this episode, the change Jesus brings is always for our good. What is it for you? Because Jesus, he can cleanse it and free us from its possession over us with just a word. We've seen the evidence. He has all the authority. Will you come to him and trust him? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've shown us all this evidence of just who your son Jesus is, that he really is the son of God, that he really has authority of not just sickness, the wind and the waves, nature, but over death itself. And as we look forward to that time where he willingly became unclean so that we might be clean, might we be captivated by him and trust him with everything. We thank you so much that he uses his authority for our good and might we fearlessly go forward knowing that he is for our sake and for our good as we look forward for that kingdom to come. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.